I know one group that was not singing that song, and that was the Sadducees. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Sadducees, who didn't believe in the resurrection, and so as my late uh, teacher Dwight Pryor uh, said, they didn't believe in the resurrection, and that's why they're sad, you see. That was Dwight, blame it on Dwight. Let's turn uh, together to Mark chapter 12, verse 18 to 27. Mark 12, verses 18 to 27. We've got a couple more weeks after this where we'll be in the Gospel of Mark. And then, as you may recall, during Lent this past year, we looked at chapters 14 through 16. So we're going to wind up our look at the, the Gospel of Mark these last couple of weeks. And we're following Jesus as he's entered Jerusalem, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, he then comes and cleanses the temple and gets himself in hot water with the, the Jewish priestly leaders, the Sadducees and, and uh, the high priests. Uh, and they want to call him on the carpet, but they're afraid of the people because the, the, he was very popular among the people. And so they turn, and, and we saw a few weeks ago, that they actually uh, sent a couple of other groups, a few Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus, and, and those two are about as far apart as you could be uh, among the Jewish groups in their, in their thinking to try to catch Jesus in his words, particularly about whether they should pay taxes to Caesar or not. We talked a little bit about that. And uh, they didn't fare so well. And uh, so now we see the Sadducees coming. And the Sadducees are this, this uh, group that that the, the high priests were, were pretty much all part of that group. Uh, most of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, was made up of, of Sadducees. But the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible uh, as authoritative. The rest were just sort of, you could take them as additional literature, but they weren't Scripture. Only the Torah was Scripture to them. And as a result, that their theology was a bit different than, than the other Jews as well and especially when it comes to uh, the resurrection. And so now they're, they're going to come and they're going to try to trap Jesus regarding the resurrection, probably some arguments they had used before uh, with great success. So let's, let's uh, look at uh, Jesus as he addresses this. And we're not just going to look at the argument themselves. We want to look at resurrection as well and, and what that means for us. Mark, eight, Mark 12, verses 18 through 27. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a, a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. 
Well, we'll uh, stop there at that point. I don't know how, for how many that argument uh, uh, really convinces you of things, but we're going to talk about it in the Jewish context. But first, let's come to God in prayer. Holy Spirit, you inspired these words to be remembered and written down by, by Mark, shared with the churches and shared even today with us. But we know that your work of inspiration is not done. You continue to inspire your word to your people. And so we pray that we would inspire it to us, that we might hear what we need to hear from these words of Jesus and that uh, we might be challenged and encouraged as is appropriate. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book on heaven, called Heaven, Randy Alcorn writes at one point about how this idea of a life after death was was something that was kind of lingering, had been lingering in the human heart. And and it shows up in a number of different cultures. So he writes, and I quote, Australian Aborigines pictured heaven as a distant island beyond the western horizon. The early Finns thought heaven was a distant island in the faraway east. Mexicans, Peruvians, and Polynesians believe they went to the sun or moon after death. Native Americans believe that in the afterlife, their spirits would hunt the spirits of buffalo. The Gilgamesh epic, an ancient Babylonian legend, refers to a resting place of heroes and hints at a tree of life. In the pyramids of Egypt, the embalmed bodies had maps placed beside them as guides to their future world. The Romans believed that the righteous would picnic in the Elysian fields while their horses grazed nearby. Seneca, the Roman philosopher, said, The day thou fearest as the last is the birthday of eternity. Although these depictions of the afterlife differ, the unifying testimony of the human heart throughout history is belief in life after death. Anthropological evidence suggests that every culture has a God-given innate sense of the eternal, that this world is not all there is, end quote. Especially that last line, a God-given sense of the eternal. It's what the author of Ecclesiastes talked about in in that great chapter on time in Ecclesiastes 3, where he said uh, that eternity is set within our hearts. Like a time clock, eternity is set within our hearts. And that seems to come out among the different religions of the world, even though they don't believe in Christianity and and how you get to to the point of the afterlife. There's there's that unsettling feeling that they have with eternity set within their hearts. However, as Christians, we may be sometimes insecure uh, about the biblical idea of particularly how we would get to heaven, how we would live on in eternity, because that involves resurrection from death. And that's not scientifically verifiable. I dare say none of us probably know any resurrected people. And so it's easy to be insecure and fearful trying to make an argument for uh, resurrection from the dead because of this. Now, not everyone's gun-shy like that. Lee Strobel's written a couple of books about, about it or written about it in a couple of books, The Case for Christ, The Case for Miracles. Josh McDowell, early on in his life, set out to prove Christianity false. And he thought that should be easy. All he had to do was disprove the resurrection. 
And in his research, he actually found more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than evidence of any two events combined in human history and became a Christian. And yet many Christians would probably be a little insecure. And and that insecurity was the ally of the Sadducees. They rejected the supernatural, all except God himself, denying angels, spirits, life after death, and bodily resurrection. After all, they said it was not taught in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And they loved to debate with the Pharisees who believed in resurrection, and they had some pretty good success against them. So after the Herodians and Pharisees failed to trip up Jesus with their questions, the Sadducees said, step aside, boys, and watch how it's done. In their superior self-righteous arrogance, they crossed swords with this country bumpkin rabbi from Nazareth using a puzzle they'd probably used with much success before. Little did they know that they had met the supreme mind of the universe, the Son of God. Is resurrection possible? That's the basic question. And the Sadducees came at it with a typical rabbinic puzzle. A woman who was legally married seven times kept outlasting her husband. Husbands, whose whose wife would she be in heaven? Now they thought they had Jesus on the theological ropes and kept pummeling him with lefts and rights to the point of absurdity, but, but Jesus delivers the knockout punch. You don't know your Bible, and you don't believe in the Almighty God. That's, those are strong words to Jews. He focuses on their ignorance of God's Word and God's power. And I'd suggest to you that most theological error can be traced to one or the other. A misunderstanding or not ignorance of God's Word or a misunderstanding or ignorance of God's power. Well, they're asking Jesus, as a rabbi, to make a ruling on a point of law involving leveret marriage. Leveret marriage was designed to provide care for a brother's widow and preserve the family line by producing children for him if he had left none of his own. But in this hypothetical case, there are seven husbands. Now, given that seven was the Jewish number of completeness, it could almost serve as an infinite number. Now, clearly, this is not a legitimate theological question, but an attempt to ridicule the doctrine of resurrection and of life after death. The Sadducees, who held that only the Pentateuch or Torah was authoritative, couldn't find the doctrine of resurrection there. And it is true that the only clear teaching about resurrection in the Old Testament is much later. In Daniel 12, verse 2, is actually probably the only verse that's very clear about it. And then you find smatterings in the Psalms and in the other prophets, but that was all after the Torah. And the doctrine had actually only become fully defined in the intertestamental periods between the Old and New Testaments, especially during the Maccabean period of the second century B.C., a time of great martyrdom when the Jews looked at that and said, all these good people are dying for their faith. There has to be something more for them. And they looked into scriptures and and, uh, found the the idea of the resurrection. So obviously, the Sadducees, in offering this unanswerable question, are trying to make Jesus look silly. 
while at the same time putting down the Pharisaic doctrine of resurrection. Well, Jesus turns and makes two charges against them in verse 24. He says, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? And then he unpacks these charges in reverse order. First, he says, You don't know the power of God. Now, Jesus doesn't give any examples here, but just raising the question about God's power had to give them pause. How can you doubt that God could do anything? How can you doubt his ability to raise the dead? The God who created the world and all life. With whom Enoch walked and was no more, although apparently didn't die. Who delivered Israel from Egypt, which was considered by the Jews a national resurrection. The Sadducees truly didn't know the power of God. And of course, Jesus holds back his final proof of resurrection for five days that comes on Easter Sunday. But Jesus says God's power is so great that not only can he raise people from death, he can recreate life on a different level. People will be more like angels, whom the rabbis believed did not marry or procreate because they were immortal. Now, of course, the Sadducees didn't believe in angels either. So Jesus is actually accusing them of even further misunderstanding. But think about that. We've read that passage probably many times in our lives, maybe reflected on it. What does it mean? What does it mean about the nature of eternity and of eternal relationships? When Jesus talks about no marriage in heaven and and people being more like angels, how do we take that? R.T. France has an interesting suggestion. He suggests that perhaps heavenly relationships are not something less than marriage, but something more. Jesus does not say that love between those who have been married on earth will vanish, but rather implies that it will be broadened so no one is excluded. Our problem is that we, like the Sadducees, have only this life's experience by which to measure what is to come. We don't know what it's like to be angels in heaven. You don't know the power of God, he says. And secondly, you don't know the Scriptures. Now, by saying this, he may be doing two things. One, condemning them for failing to recognize the rest of the Scriptures, the Psalms and the Prophets. But then secondly, even failing to see the implications of the Torah, the Scriptures to which they did hold. Because rather than quoting some of the more obvious passages like Daniel 12 or some of the, the other prophets that hint at resurrection, Jesus goes back to the Torah. He meets them on their own ground In Exodus 3, verse 6, here God claims to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they were all dead. Why would God claim to be the God of men who no longer existed? If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are nothing more than dust, God cannot be called now their God. He's not the God of that which has ceased to be. And from here, Jesus derives the idea that the patriarchs, having long since died, were in some way alive. Because God speaks of his present relationship with them. Now, do you follow that logic? Anyone want to get up here and explain it to me? Well, it's not something that we're going to get so much in our Western mindset, but it spoke very well to the Eastern mindset and to the, to the Jews. It was a very rabbinic sort of 
argument, and it carried a, would have carried a lot of weight with the Jews. The upshot is that these three patriarchs enjoyed a, a special covenant relationship with God so dynamic and profound that it demanded a continued living relationship after death. After all, God doesn't make covenants with, with insects that last an hour, but with people who live on into eternity. Even the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, when he talks about the, the patriarchs, the, the great people of faith, states that the patriarchs themselves knew that these covenant promises would transcend earthly life, and so Abraham would look for a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God, not the current city he was living in. Incidentally, the, the Jewish Talmud, an inter interpretation of the oral law from Jesus' day, enumerates a number of rabbinic arguments that are remarkably similar to the argument that Jesus made here about resurrection. But is Jesus just engaging in rabbinic wordplay? Again, R.T. France suggests that his argument is based rather on the nature of God's relationship with his human followers. The covenant by which he binds himself to them is too strong to be terminated by their death. To be associated with a living God is to be taken beyond the temporary life on earth into a relationship with God that lasts as long as God lasts. Those with whom the living God identifies himself cannot be truly dead, therefore must be alive with him after their earthly life is finished. It's an argument from faith rather than strict logic. God of the dead is not a title appropriate to the God revealed in the Pentateuch. Now it's interesting because C.S. Lewis comes at it from an, the opposite approach almost. He, France argues from God's perspective, C.S. Lewis from ours. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while well, there's such a thing as water. If I must find myself in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And I think what C.S. Lewis is doing is he's jumping off from what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. Eternity is set within our hearts. So something has to meet that desire of eternity within us. The question is, are we ever like the Sadducees? Do we really believe what the Bible says? Do we really trust God, a God of power? then why do we sometimes live as if God's promises aren't true? As if the Bible's not the supreme authority in life? As if God cannot help us in our situations? Why do we live for the moment rather than preparing for eternity? But now I want to ask another question that's not asked by the biblical passage, but I think it's asked sometimes by people who read this biblical passage. And so I do want to touch on that. And that's the question, not only is the resurrection possible, but is the resurrection preferable? That sounds strange, coming from the mouth of a preacher. But think about it this way. Think about this story. A pastor was preaching on going to heaven. 
He said, how many of you would like to go to heaven tonight? Everybody raised their hands except one little boy in the balcony. So he tried it again. How many want to go to heaven? Everyone but the little boy in the balcony. So he said to him, son, don't you want to go to heaven? The little boy said, yeah, someday, but I thought you were getting up a load right now. (laughs) Do you want to go to heaven? Well, yeah, but let's put it off a while. It's a surface question, but an interesting one. Maybe as Christians we've asked it a little bit different way. What is our heavenly existence going to be like? In other words, is it worth it? Is it worth it? When Jesus especially talks about no marriage in heaven, maybe that shakes us up a bit. What does that mean? If we're like angels, do we have wings? Will we recognize each other? Will we be neutered, sexless? Maybe we've heard happily married couples like the late President Andrew Jackson say, if there's no marriage in heaven, I don't want to go. But what does the Bible tell us about our heavenly existence? Let me suggest five things we can find in scriptures. First, the Bible tells us that our bodies, as well as our souls, will be raised. 1 Corinthians 15. Our bodies, as well as our souls, will be raised. So that Johnny Erickson Tata, who broke her neck in a diving accident as a teen and has lived for, for decades as a quadriplegic, writes, I have hope in the future. The Bible speaks about bodies being glorified. I know the meaning of that now. It's the time after my death here when I, the quadriplegic, will be on my feet dancing. Bodies as well as souls will be raised. Secondly, our individuality apparently will be preserved. We'll somehow know and recognize each other. We get hints of that in the Scripture. Moses and Elijah were recognizable on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Jesus' parable about the rich man and Lazarus, in Luke 16, all the characters, including Father Abraham, had their own individuality. Third, we will be even more recognizable and more lovable in heaven because we'll be perfect. No longer hiding behind our masks, we'll be more transparent. Fourth, no marriage in heaven doesn't mean no love. In fact, we'll be able to love perfectly and be perfectly lovable. But intimacy will be with all people instead of just one. And of course, the focus of our intimacy will be with our bridegroom, Jesus. Fifth, as we're reminded in the end of Revelation, there is no death or even pain or tears in heaven. People who are like angels don't die will probably be something like Jesus in his body after the resurrection. In his glorified body, he ascended to heaven and was still seen by Stephen in Acts 7, by by the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, by John on the Isle of Patmos. Now, I understand saying these things doesn't necessarily mean we understand them. We cannot fully comprehend heaven or the joys that await us. In fact, the common version of heaven may even seem to our finite minds a bit of a drag. Sitting on clouds, playing harps, is that anyone's idea of a good time? My my favorite C.S. Lewis illustration 
about heaven from an earthly perspective goes like this. For a young boy, he writes, eating chocolate may seem like the most heavenly thing one could do. Perhaps he hears of sexual intimacy being held up as the highest bodily pleasure and asks, does it involve eating chocolate? If not, his mind, in his mind, it can't be so great. In the same way, we who enjoy marital intimacy or other earthly pleasures cannot imagine heaven could be so great without them. We, we just don't know, like the little boy, we have yet to re- reach that level of maturity where we can understand the pleasures of heaven. Until then, you could say we live in the time between Good Friday and Easter. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, wrote, Good Friday and Easter Sunday have earned names on the calendar, yet in a real sense we live on Saturday, the day with no name. What the disciples experienced on a small scale, three days of grief over one man who had died on a cross, we now live through on a cosmic scale. Human history grinds on between the time of promise and fulfillment. Can we trust that God will make something holy and beautiful and good out of a world that includes Bosnia and Rwanda and inner city ghettos and jammed prisons and the richest nation on earth? It's Saturday on planet earth. Will Sunday ever come? Back to our two questions. Is resurrection possible? Not only is it possible, but it's guaranteed by Jesus Christ in his own resurrection. Is resurrection preferable? From everything the Bible tells us, it will be a joy unlike anything ever known. So what do we do with this knowledge? C.S. Lewis reminds us, our Heavenly Father has provided many delightful inns for us along our journey, but he takes great care to see that we do not mistake any of them for home. We must still seek to enjoy this world and help God's kingdom continually come, his will continually be done on earth as it is in heaven. But never mistake this world for home. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for we trust inspiring us to understand it and to to be challenged and encouraged by it. We pray that we might be open to your revelation even when sometimes it doesn't seem to to make sense, certainly scientific sense, even at times when it doesn't uh, seem to fit with what our idea is of of pleasures. We pray that you might give us a sense of of your knowledge or at least your peace in uh, knowing that what you say is true. And because of Jesus having been raised from the dead, we can be assured that, that we will move one day from this life into eternity with you. We thank you for that promise, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.